G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investor's weekly podcast radio show. Well, lately I've been getting intrigued by cryptocurrencies, first by Bitcoin going above $2,000 US, and then I was hooked when it hit $3,000 just three weeks later. And then Ethereum caught my attention, the second biggest digital currency, which has gone up in value even more than Bitcoin. So what the hell are they? And are they speculations, investments, or the future of money? Or all three? Well, this week we've got two interviews on that subject, but I can assure you they won't be the last. Whether it's because you're thinking of trading them, or wondering about the impact on your bank investments, or because you're just intrigued like me, it is a topic worth following. But before we head into the misty fields of cryptocurrencies, let's just check in with Stephen Kukoulos about today's economic news, the Fed's decision to raise US interest rates, and the labour force data from the ABS. Always a dilemma. These monthly labour force numbers do jump, and that's one lesson that uh, over many years of watching these things, you tend to approach them with a degree of caution. But having said that, it's not just one month. A couple of months ago, the unemployment rate was 5.9%. So we've had a, a clear lowering from that level. So even if the 55 proves to be a bit of an outlier, next month we bounce back up to 56 or something like that. Yeah, there's no question that we're getting a slight lowering in the unemployment rate. And even perhaps more important than that, we've had three months now where the employment numbers have been very robust. That combined, we've had over 100,000 jobs in, in three months. And again, even though that may be overstating the true position of the economy, there's something happening in the labour market that perhaps a bit inconsistent with those less than robust jobs numbers that we saw just a, a week and a half ago. Yeah, well, the ABS says we've had 20,000 new jobs per month for the past five months. You're right, it does seem to be pretty steady improvement going on there. There is. And on reflection, I know we've only had the numbers for a short while now, but one thing that's been evident and it's been a dominant theme for the Reserve Bank and even the, the Treasurer when he's been trying to balance his budget and these things is the very weak wages growth. And most of the debate over the last couple of months on the weak wages growth has been on the side of the consumer. Of course, if you're getting less money in your in your bank account every uh, every week, every month, you're going to be uh, less able to sort of ramp up your spending. And, and that's true. Look at it from the employer demand side, that uh, the wages that people and firms will have to pay to hire more workers, low wages growth is actually a positive for employment trends. So we might be experiencing, and again, we need to see a little bit more detail on the data and we need to see a bit more analysis of this. But if we are getting this position where low wages growth is encouraging firms to hire more, and they're certainly not investing in capital equipment, uh, we could be seeing you know, maybe a, a mini example of a substitution away from CapEx and machinery and plant and these sorts of things towards labour because labour is, is cheap relative to that plant and machinery. So, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a structural tweak going on within the economy as well, it appears. So what does it tell you about the state of the economy at the moment? Look, I'm still, I'm still a little concerned. You can't ignore the consumer sentiment numbers that we saw recently. The retail sales numbers look to be pretty sluggish. We do know that housing's cooling, not just prices, but also new construction activity. And, and that's a big employer and a big driver of the economy. So we're not heading for recession. I don't think anybody is seriously forecasting that at the moment. But it's more likely that we're in this 
you know, GDP growth in real terms of two, two and a half percent. So, so not dreadful, but really not strong enough to reflate the economy and to see the business sector, you know, kicking up, a, kicking up its heels in, on the prospect of making a lot of money. So I think for the moment, even though we're getting a little bit of good news on the jobs front, you know, a lot of the other indicators are, are sort of sluggish and you know, mediocre rather than being strong. So I think that's going to be the dominant theme for the next few months, at least, until we get some sort of evidence that you know, consumer spending is bouncing back, hopefully in the latter part of this year. But for the moment, it's just this uh, ongoing sluggish growth. And meanwhile, um, the Federal Reserve increased interest rates as expected uh, last night. Was there anything, though, in the statement uh, and the dot plot, the graph that shows how each of the Fed members thinks interest rates are going to go, is there anything in those things that surprised you or interested you? A couple of things were were interesting. Well, a few hours before the Fed statement, we had numbers on both retail sales in the US and the US uh, CPI data, and both were weaker than expected. So that was a bit of a stirring issue for the Fed as they sat down to consider rates. But if you look at the actual Fed decision and some of the other words that accompanied their statement and the dot plot, they're looking for another rate hike before the end of the year, but only one. They meet three more times between now and year end, but in only one of those meetings are we likely to see one more rate hike. And then when we get into 2018, in their forecast, there's an expectation that we might see a couple more rate hikes. But of course, it was really reliant on the numbers being stronger. And when we look at the forecast for inflation, which of course is the critical aspect of the Fed funds policy and US interest rates, they've got inflation staying below their target right through to 2019. So in a sense, why would you need to see too many more rate hikes in the US if there's not much confidence that inflation is going to be lifting. So there's that side of, of the real economy. The other one is that they're starting to scale back that incredible balance sheet of quantitative easing that they built up during the super stimulatory monetary policy. They're saying that they're going to be starting to wind down the $4 trillion of assets that they own, which is a, a really big number, slowly but surely over time. Again, they don't want to do it quickly because they'll disrupt the uh, bond market. But they're suggesting that they're going to start with six billion a month of wind back out of four trillion. So it's a pretty tiny effort. But over the course of the next few months, they're going to gradually build it up to thirty billion a month. So we're going to be seeing, you know, this the start of a very very slow unwind of that huge balance sheet that the Fed has built up. And if we look at the market reaction, you know, U.S. stocks were you know, not that excited by it. We saw the bond market yields falling quite sharply because, again, they don't think the Fed's going to be hiking as much as they thought. And and the unwind of quantitative easing is actually pretty um, pretty tiny. The US dollar actually fell along with bond yields at the time of the estatement, but then pretty soon afterwards recovered it all back again. What went on there, do you know? Oh, a few things. I think, again, the US is now moving into the realms of a high yield, and you've got to compare the US with the Eurozone, with Japan, with the UK, Canada, or even to some extent Australia. But, um, yeah, that's the, that's the company that the US dollar is trading in. And when you've got the Fed funds right now at 1.25%, the 10-year yield is around about 2.1%, 2.2% as we speak. You're looking at the 10-year yield, just for example, in Germany, it's 0.2%. In Japan, it's 0.05%. You know, in the UK, while they may have other political issues there, you know, yields are 0.9%. So in a sense, that US dollar jumping up and down and around about is, is really, uh, I think, linked to the fact that it appears as though 
you know, US interest rates are going to be staying relatively high. The only exception to that is against the Aussie, of course. Um, and that explains why the Aussie dollar is super strong today, that we've got even higher yields in the US. But you've got this situation where for investors even grappling for really, you know, dreadfully low yields, the US is actually a, a high yielder. It's a very liquid market. So if you're a a fund manager or investor in Japan or in Europe or even in the UK and Canada, the US still has some appeal simply because its yields are moving higher and much higher than in the local currency. Now let's hear from Asha Tan who runs the Aussie startup called Coinjar that lets people buy, sell, hold and use bitcoins. So Coinjar is a Bitcoin wallet and exchange, so you can buy and sell digital currencies such as Bitcoin and help transfer them using our service as well. How long have you been going? Uh, Four years right now. Obviously, during that time, the price of one Bitcoin has gone through the roof. Yeah, we've seen it rise, we've seen it ease. Uh, It's been quite a journey for us, but I think more interesting is the public interest uh, into this new technology as something that could very well shape the future. Are most of the people who use your service investors or speculators or people using Bitcoin for transactions? Sure. I would say the majority of people on our platform are looking to speculate or, and have benefited from the rise of digital currencies, but it's only inherently as useful as what you can do with it. So many also use it to transfer value and uh, operate businesses on top of the protocol as well. So let's talk about what you can do with it. What can you do with it? Can I go into a shop and use Bitcoin to buy something? Uh, There are places in Australia which accept Bitcoin as payment. We have a debit card as well that allows you to spend it at any FPROS terminal in Australia. Um, But I think more interestingly, the the CSIRO Data61 just put out a paper last week about, you know, all the things that you could do with cryptocurrency in the future, such as money remittance overseas at a fraction of a cost uh, of what it normally costs right now. And that lower cost is because you're cutting out the banks, is that correct? So a lot of these digital currency services uh, rely on distributed networks, so very much like the internet, there's no one central intermediary. And so that makes uh, processing true middlemen not, not a thing of a past, basically. And how do you make money? Uh, So we take a 1% uh, fee and also a spread on transactions, which is around 1% as well. What sort of volume are you handling? Well, so it very much uh, flows with the Bitcoin price. Uh, We've done over $200 million in Bitcoin exchange since inception. What's the volume of transactions per month or week at the moment? So it's, it's anywhere between uh, you know, 10 and $20 million a month at the moment. Uh, we're definitely on the high end of transfers as uh, a lot of public interest has come with the increase in uh, asset values of, of digital currencies and Bitcoin. Well, you say that a lot of the interest is speculative. Do you think, therefore, that it's a bubble? We've seen it go uh, in the early days from 100 to 1000 and back down to about $200. So there is going to be quite a lot of volatility in the space. I think the question is, what can people really make or do with these protocols? And we've seen some of these new protocols, such as Ethereum, and people build smart contracts and a new type of digital companies on the back of these protocols. So um, it's very early days, but I think the value will be created uh, around, uh, I guess, the use cases for some of these uh, digital currencies and protocols. So uh, just like my company is trying to make it easier 
to send and receive value around the world. If people see value in that, I guess that's a positive way forward in terms of the asset price as well. But doesn't the volatility that you mentioned, which is clearly there, get in the way of using Bitcoin as a transactional medium? There are people who have made really smart attempts to use the tool without uh, experiencing the volatility. So for instance, on our platform, we've got a hedging function which you can lock in the price uh, compared to uh, major foreign currencies if you want to use it as a uh, transfer mechanism as opposed to a store of value. It seems to me that Bitcoin is two things. It's a, it's a speculative investment and it's a means of exchange, a replacement for usual money. And I just wonder if those two functions are conflicting with each other fundamentally. That's a very good insight. And I think uh, internally, uh, money is many things to many people as well. And I think Bitcoin is still trying to find its identity in that respect. Uh, but at this stage, it does both of those things relatively well. Um, it'll be interesting to see if people use Bitcoin more as a store of value and use some of these alternative protocols as transfers of uh, value instead. So um, it's still very early on. Bitcoin has withstood a lot of storms in the past, and I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. You mentioned you've got a debit card on your system. How does that work? Sure. So it's a prepaid debit card. If you receive Bitcoin from anyone in the world, you can automatically put it on your debit card and go to an ATM or go to any FPOS terminal and use it. So you could receive Bitcoin from Brazil and go to a Woolworths and use it in a matter of minutes as opposed to waiting for a traditional money transfer. It's obviously just the beginning of this. Where do you think it's going to end up, Asher? I think it's a very interesting future. People talk about this as a machine money for machines and how machines will pay them each other in the future. So um, I guess it's very tip of the iceberg in terms of digital money and, and how it interacts with day-to-day life. And now Ethereum. Boku says he found out about it in 2015 and he hasn't been able to sleep properly since then. I came across it in early 2015. And in the middle of 2015, the Ethereum network went live um, and I was curious. And so I started uh, mining the Ethereum blockchain. So I built two supercomputers, 22 trillion floating point calculations per second, and it goes through and tries to mine the Ethereum blockchain. So what did you say? 32 trillion calculations per second? 22 trillion calculations per second. That's the sort of computing power you need in order to mine these things? Yes. Why do you need that? What are the calculations they do? So the calculations they do are pretty simple, but in the end, it's just like a lottery, and you're drawing a lottery ticket 22 million trillion times a second. That's sort of, that's the sort of concept. Um, you're competing against other people around the world um, to win this lottery. And when you win the lottery, and the lottery goes uh, every 15 seconds, there's a new draw. And if you win the draw, you get to mine the block. And the block is then transmitted to, to all the different computers around the world. Currently, there's about 33,000 computers connected to this network. Um, and when you mine the block, you earn some ethers. And ethers is similar to the Bitcoin uh, token. So how many have you earned? How many ethers have you earned? 689. Each one is now worth, what, $390 or something? US. Each one is currently worth $521. Yeah. 
Goodness me, it was about five minutes ago that it was worth $390. That's the um, US price. Yes. The Australian price, yes. Oh, I see, that's that's the Australian price, yes. Okay. How does Ethereum differ from Bitcoin? So Bitcoin lets you transfer Bitcoins from one account to another. Um, You can liken it to an email system where you have your email and your password. And if you have the password, you can email your coin to another account. With Ethereum, the Ether is used to pay for computation on the network. And the computation is a small program that you write. And the program can receive Ethers, can hold Ethers, and can pay Ethers. So you're writing lots of different programs on the network that will run. You can't stop it. But once you deploy the program to the Ethereum network, it will run forever if it needs to. Um, and with Bitcoin, you can only send, while with Bitcoin, you can only send the transaction. With Ethereum, you can make the system do something. And that something is giving rise to a whole lot of different use cases. The biggest use case currently for Ethereum is to raise funds for new projects. So there there was a project that started maybe six, eight months ago. It's called the Gollum Network. And they are building a supercomputer that will run around the world. So you can contribute your personal computing power to this network and you will receive Gollum tokens. And if you want to run a large computation on the supercomputer, you submit it and you pay with the Gollum token. So Ethereum is a payment system to pay for the computation of programs. What's a Gollum? A Gollum, yes. It's a project that's still in the works. I think they are Eastern European and they are building the software that you install onto your PC. And your PC, do you, do you know the SETI at home? and folding at home. So SETI at home is where you can contribute your spare computation on your computer to find any signals of life forms from the space. So folding at home is where you can try to work out some DNA computations using spare computations of your computer. So Gollum is a general purpose computing platform that will run on people's computers and you get paid in Gollum tokens, and if you want to submit your computation to the network, you pay the Gollum tokens, which will be received by the people providing the hardware. The Gollum tokens turn into Ethereum's, do they? Ethers. So the Gollum tokens, they run on the Ethereum network. I have trouble understanding how blockchain enables a trustworthy network or trustworthy settlements. Are you able to explain that simply? On the blockchain, in the end, what's being stored for a lot of these numbers, are just, they're called tokens, and they're just bits on the blockchain. It's ones and zeros, and together they'll make a number, and the numbers can be large numbers or small numbers. And to modify those numbers, you need to have a username and password. They're called public keys and private keys. And the system that Bitcoin is run on, it uses the encryption that 
does not allow for easy breaking of this public-private key pair. So no one has yet hacked into the security of the Bitcoin or Ethereum or the other cryptocurrency systems um, because it's difficult to crack. I thought there was a big hack in Ethereum early on and they had to fork it and have two, and have two branches of Ethereum right at the beginning. That is the, the DAO, the, the great DAO hack. Uh, 150 million US was raised by the DAO and a hacker found a small um, a flaw in the program. So this is the program that's deployed on the Ethereum blockchain. So the Ethereum system itself, the software is very small and it provides the platform. And on top of that, you deploy programs. And the programs are called smart contracts. And the smart contracts are not really that smart. They just do what they're meant to do. And if you write the smart contract incorrectly, they will allow people to hack into it or to do things that was not meant to be done. Not meant to be done. And this is what happened with the, the DAO. So the DAO was a small little program. It's just about 2,000, 3,000 lines of code. And it said that if you contribute ethers to the program, it will give you tokens. And the program ended up holding a lot of ethers. And the DAO hacker managed to work out how to drain the ethers. So it's not it's not the Ethereum platform itself that was hacked, but a small program on the Ethereum platform. And because it was significant, the the software that runs the Ethereum platform was uh, was modified to return the funds to the original investors. So the original investors got back 100% of their initial investment. Plus, on the Ether Classic, which is the original version of the Ethereum data, they got back um, 70%, 30% was taken by the hacker. 70%, the current value of Ether Classic is about 5 6% of the normal Ethereum system. So in the end, investors got back about 105% of their investment, which is pretty good. Speaking of investment, do you think that because Ethereum is now sort of becoming more mainstream and, and is seen as a more stable and usable platform, that it will be worth as much as Bitcoin is now? When you're talking about um, the market capitalization and the individual units of Bitcoins or Ethers, it's quite different because with Ethers, there are a lot more of these coins floating around the system. Whereas in Bitcoin, there's 21 million that is going to be eventually floating around the system. With Ethereum, there's about 90-something million of these coins running around. So the price per Ether is lower compared to Bitcoins, but because there are more coins, it comes up to currently Ethers about 80% of the market capitalization of Bitcoin. Will it rise? I don't know. Yes, Bitcoin is in trouble at the moment because of the infighting, the vested interests that are tearing it apart. With Ethereum, there's a whole lot of use cases that are coming out and much more will be built on that. Um, so it's a useful system. Do you think that Ethereum or Bitcoin, or perhaps more likely Ethereum, is going to end up disrupting 
the current legacy system of money? I hope so. <laughs> because there's so many middle people in the mo- at the moment um, taking out a cut. Um, the system is still very small in market capitalization. Like the big four banks earn more in profits than you know what the Ethereum system was worth a short time ago. And that's just a profit, not including turnover or the total amount. So in terms of disrupting, we have seen instances of insurance happening on the blockchain, on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, there was this group that put in uh, some flight delay insurance. And um, it was just a small little pilot. And so they scraped the, the flight data from a website, which tells you whether a plane lands early or late or never. And, um, you know, so it's been cancelled. And using that data, you can send in some digital currency and you get the payoff if your flight is late. That's a nice example of insurance where there's a known event that is yes or no, you know, whether your flight was late and the payments are automatic. You don't have to go through and negotiate with your insurer whether you're getting a just payout or not. That's insurance. With banking, yes, the the blockchain platforms so far have not come up with a nice model of lending, lending and borrowing yet. Um, so it's more like FX at the moment, um, foreign exchange, where you have a currency and it's a transfer currency. You can hold your currency. There are certain small instances where you can earn some interest on it. And borrowing is not that easy um, to do on these platforms. So I think the financial institutions, there will still be some use for borrowing and lending. But as for the payments, it could disrupt it. Currently, you have got your Apple Pays and you know your different networks here. And they take a day, three days sometimes for money to reach your bank account. Um, on the blockchain system, the money arrives immediately. Maybe 10 minutes for Bitcoin, 15 seconds for Ethereum. So that's banking, that's insurance. The payments, the transaction fees for on the Bitcoin or blockchain platform can be low. It's not it's not low on Bitcoin at the moment because of the block size. You know, so you have to pay more to prioritize your transactions. For Ethereum, you can transfer an amount, whether it's 50 cents equivalent or 1 million bucks equivalent, you can transfer it for 3 cents. So it's pretty cheap. And finally, Peter Harcher had an interesting column this week about the implications of the British election, particularly for Australia. And specifically, he says a new great divergence in politics is replacing the great convergence. So I got him on the blower to explain to us what he meant. One of the big things that's happened uh, is that the convergence, the great convergence that happened not just in Britain, but uh, it also happened in the US, it's also happened here, of left and right in recent times, especially on economic policy, has now gone the other way. We, We now see a big divergence, and in particular... Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader in Britain, has led quite a successful renaissance, if you like, of old-style left-wing redistributive economics 
and it's proved very successful and especially popular with younger voters. So that's one of the really big changes we see in this election. His success seems to be in part, or possibly even mainly, a result of promising partly, largely unaffordable things. That's right, and uh, people have cheered him on. (laughs) It seems to be post-austerity Britain, much as we saw in the US, where Donald Trump promised a tremendous blowout in the US deficit and yet was managed to win anyway. Uh, So, you know, a decade after the global crisis, uh, people are just indicating they don't care anymore. They don't care about debt and deficit and affordability, and they don't care about retrenching the national debt. It's uh, spend up. So uh, the group with which that was particularly popular in England were the, or in Britain, I should say, were the 24 and under voters who turned out in record numbers to vote. As you know, of course, unlike us, they have a a voluntary system and Corbyn's rabble-rousing message of anti-elitism and populist spending, uh, just as Bernie Sanders did in the US, by the way, has has really energised a whole new generation of voters who until now were pretty much apathetic and didn't bother to turn out. Can we characterise this change as you talk about the end of the Great Convergence? Was the convergence to do with being responsible? And that is to say both sides of politics were being careful about the budget and and so that there, you know, and there was an overriding kind of imperative on both sides of politics to not have a deficit going too long. Is this change, this divergence, to do with irresponsible fiscal policy? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, that's... There are many definitions of the word populism in politics, but uh, one that I like is that populism promises the people simple, easy solutions to big, complex problems. And you do that by by being unrealistic. And one of the ways of doing that is to say, we're going to spend what we want. We're going to give you whatever the hell you're clamoring for. And, you know, we'll worry about the deficit another day. As part of that, the great convergence was really a question of trying to make market economies work, trying to balance the demands of a welfare system with uh, the, the debt burden. Well, all of that is now uh, back back in, the, uh, back in the battle zone. All those big points of convergence are now diverging and the parties are really playing increasingly to, to the fringes, uh, especially, well, we saw it with Trump, we see it with Corbyn, they're getting increasingly populist and unfortunately, uh, Alan, populism sometimes can be popular. That's what we're seeing now. And in fact, you're you're saying that the Labor left in Australia is likely to argue now that the party can win over more young voters with the same sort of policies. Well, I don't know uh, that they're going to go there, but I think they're going to be very tempted. And I think you're going to be hearing increasingly inside the councils of the Labor Party in Australia, that line of argument. Yes, you are going to be hearing that it's working uh, elsewhere, that we have to stop trying to be a close shadow of the Liberal Party that we in Labor need to be doing exactly the sort of thing that Jeremy Corbyn's doing. And I think that will be tempting to a a party that if it sees itself coming close to election, but to winning an election, but not close enough, it will prove quite tempting and it could reopen the largely healed division uh, from the 70s and 80s between the Labor left and right factions. You also seem to be suggesting it might reopen the largely healed division between Bill Shorten and Anthony Albanese, which, you know, and obviously there's been no kind of suggestion from the Albanese camp that he's going to challenge, but how do you think that might play out? There are two factors here, Alan. One is that 
you know, Anthony Albanese's uh, not going to die without trying. He's not going to die wondering. He will strike if and when he thinks conditions are right and if and when he thinks he can win. That's the first thing. And he'll he'll have a lot of caucus members who are with him. Now, at the moment, this is an entirely uh, latent, uh, silent subject because uh, he can't win at the moment. Shorten's ahead in the polls. He's been consistently ahead in the polls. And there's no organising going on. There's nothing in the, in the way of any sort of movement at all. But uh, the moment that changes, uh, Albanese and his supporters will mobilise and he will strike. So this sort of ideological divide that we see in the British election and the success of a more leftist appeal, that coinciding with a left-right division in, in a, uh, a leadership contest could prove the formula to reignite all of those old divisions in Australia. This is only a possible scenario. Who knows what's going to happen? But it's a lot more likely today than it was last week. Another lesson from the UK election that you, that could have some relevance to Australia, as you point out, is the way that the two main parties have marginalised the minor parties in the UK. Yeah. What's the lesson there? Well, you're right. The two major parties managed to well, they've both gone with uh, Brexit since the referendum, whereas UKIP led Britain, really led Britain there. Uh, the the main, main parties have now signed up to that and they put UKIP out of business as a result. So UKIP's completely abolished, wiped out. And then also the Liberal Democrats have been marginalised as well, remain marginalised, I suppose. The lesson there, and the two main parties got the biggest share of the vote in half a century. The main reason seems to have been that it was a, a starker, ideological and policy choice, largely really because of the left-wing extremes that Corbyn has led Britain to. Um, and it turns out that if you get, if you polarise, really polarise, that big two-party contest, the small parties get shoved aside. That's very interesting, Peter. I mean, do you think that that's part of the reason that the minor parties in Australia have done so well, that there's not enough difference between the Labor Party and the, um, and the Coalition? Absolutely. Yes, that's absolutely the reason. It is a curse a plague on both your houses that's led to sort of restlessness in the electorate where, so you see someone like Clive Palmer was able to go from 0% of the vote to 5 in one election. That was extraordinary. And now, of course, he's imploded and now people are flirting with again with one nation. But if the main parties open up a wider divide and diverge and there's a, there's a harder contest there, you could well see uh, the same thing happened here. It's very much a case of the minor parties thriving when the, the larger public can't tell the difference anymore and throw up their hands. Well, pulling all this together, politics is changing, money itself is changing, and we're finally pulling out of the post-GFC super stimulus, at least in the United States. And in Australia, well, the stimulus hasn't been quite so super and we're not pulling out of it yet, although if the unemployment rate keeps falling as it did today, that won't be long. And appropriately, perhaps, our birthday song today is Everybody's Talking At Me by Harry Nilsson, who would have turned 76 today if he hadn't died of heart failure at the terribly young age of 52. I do like the idea of going where the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain and where the weather suits my clothes. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words of saying Only the echoes of my mind People stop and stare 
I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes And that's it for this week. Any questions, just go to our Facebook page and I'll do my best to answer them. Thanks to my constant team and to ISM Studios for the music. I'll be back podcasting tomorrow in the Money Cafe with James Kirby. And as always, I'll pop up in your inbox on Saturday morning. Thank you.